you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Matthew 5, in the black um, Bibles in the seats in front of you, it's on page 810. Uh, So if you've never had the misfortune of playing a game with me, uh, it's not necessarily a, a, a fun experience. One, because I'm a little on the competitive side. Uh, and two, because I'm a little weird about the rules, right? The rules are the rules, and they're like that for a reason. And so we're going to follow them exactly, right? You know, Monopoly, especially, is kind of my pet peeve. You know, that, that free parking thing where you put the money, yeah, no, that's, that's not in the rules. That's not how it's supposed to be played. So we're not going to play that way. Um, however, I also have a tendency to seek out those loopholes, right? Those way through the rules and around the rules and bend them, never break them, but always bending them. And so that can be a little bit... Um, frustrating for my wife, my family. My wife and I stopped playing games years ago because it's just not fun for anybody. (laughs) Uh, Now this this approach is, uh, I think there's a certain amount to that that is just sort of part of the human condition uh, because we see sort of that same approach to the law of God in the religious environment in the time that Jesus lived, right? So we have the, the Old Testament law that was given to the nation of Israel, um, sort of broken up into, into three areas, the, the ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law. Uh, so the ceremonial law was how to be ceremonially clean, to be able to approach God, to be able to worship him. Uh, the civil law told them how to live together as a nation in the land that they were, that they were going to, in the promised land. And the moral law told them how to behave towards one another and and towards God. Now, what what happened through the course of of history is um, the people took that law and then they, for lack of a more clear term, they they added on to it. Now, this started off as being well-intentioned, right? They were were trying to provide some some guidance, some, some understanding, some interpretation for people to understand how not to break the law. So you have one of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, You shall keep the Sabbath holy. They weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, which is a fairly simple command. And over time, by the time that that Jesus came to the earth, uh, there had been defined 39 different categories, many with subcategories, of what constituted work so that you could avoid working on the Sabbath. There were, uh, there were guidelines, rules, around how many steps you could take. Uh, there were guidelines around how many letters you could write before it was considered work. You weren't permitted to climb a tree because you could accidentally break off a branch, which would count as pruning it, which would count as work, right? And so you've got, and that's just around one, one commandment. Right, there were 600, uh, 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And so they had woven this web of unbearable rules. And what's more, 
they used their observance of the rules to look down on other people. Right? So they could look at it from a righteous standpoint. I follow the rules. Therefore, I am better than you because you don't do as good a job as I do at following the rules. And so what happened was the majority of people just kind of gave up on the whole thing. They wrote the whole thing off. I mean, that's what people playing games with me tend to do. They just they give up and they write the whole thing off. It's a lost cause. And so this was the environment that, that their Messiah, their Savior, Jesus, was born into. And so in sort of those inter... Um, um, intervening passages there between Matthew 1, where we were last week, and Matthew 5, uh, Jesus was born, he grows up, and he begins his ministry here on earth as the Messiah. Uh, this, from Matthew 5 through, I think, Matthew 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and it deals with what the kingdom, what does the kingdom of God look like? What does life in this new kingdom that the Messiah has brought look like? So these people would have known what the Roman Empire looks like. Their grandparents would likely have known uh, a, a revolt and a temporary independence from Roman rule. But now that the Messiah has come, what is it that his kingdom is going to look like? So let's take a look here in Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. So those are sort of the smallest pieces of letters uh, in in the Hebrew alphabet. Will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to stop right there. So there would have been a a building excitement within those those law keepers. They were called the Pharisees, right? So any Pharisees listening to that, would, as Jesus is going through this, would have been just getting a little bit more excited with each passing phrase. Because it clearly establishes here that Jesus' intent was not to destroy or to minimize or to reduce the law in any way. So these rules that they were so invested in were really going to pay off for them, right? After all, that was the source of their righteousness. They followed the letter of the law, loopholes and all. The rules are still in, so we're still in. And then we come to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the righteousness required for entry into this new kingdom that Jesus was bringing in was something more than what the Pharisees were doing. Those were the people who had these explicit, extensive rules to be able to show that they were righteous, and it wasn't going to be enough. So who was doing more than the Pharisees? Now, that's like, that's like saying you have to be more Catholic than the Pope to be able to get in. You know, that they were the definition of what it meant to be righteous, to be correct under the law. And their adherence to the law was 
a, a good thing. It was an admirable thing. But there was something else that was required. There was something that was missing. And the next two, uh, actually the next, through the end of the chapter, give us examples. And we're going to spend some time working through that over the next few weeks. Uh, but I want to start today with, um, with verse 21. You have heard it said, those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So this is, in essence, the, the sixth commandment that God gave out of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. This is wrathful, intentional killing. Um, the the modern-day equivalent would be first-degree murder, right? This is not accidental. This is not you know, a soldier in wartime. And so this was the letter of the law. You shall not murder. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, a, I'm actually a world record holder. I share this, this world record, but uh, I hold the world record for smallest number of murders committed. Right? Zero. So, if I hold myself up against this specific law, I can look at it and say, I'm good. Right? I got it. And that can trigger in me, it does trigger in me in some small way, a sort of elitism, right? So I'm better than the people who have murdered somebody because I could control myself. I'm, I'm just a better person than they are. And that lets me look down on them regardless of whether they had repented, regardless of how much their lives might have changed from that point. But because I kept the law and they didn't, there's always going to be that temptation there for me to see myself as better than them. And that was what had happened, right, between the Pharisees and between the rest of the people. The Pharisees kept the letter of the law themselves and thought that they were better than everyone else because they were able to do that. But Jesus is going to go on to clarify here that compliance with the law, with this particular law, is not just about not murdering, but it's about something that goes beyond that. Verse 22, but I say to you, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the standard then is not just not having killed anybody, but rather to meet the true requirements of the law. You can't even have spoken to somebody in anger or even have been angry with them in the first place. Now, as we, as we unpack this, I want to take a minute to talk about the, the idea of the kingdom of self. So we are at work in our lives building a kingdom, right? And the, king, and the culture around us tells us to build up a, a kingdom of self, build up your self-worth, build up your self-esteem, the assets you have control over, the people you have power over, the, the, the breadth and number of situations that you can control. And so we strive to build these things as a way of building up the little kingdoms over which we rule. And when we become angry with someone, 
most of the time, or, or if we're honest, probably all of the time, we're upset because they are disrupting that little kingdom of self that we are building. So we get cut off in traffic. It's against the law of my kingdom to cut me off, right? But when I cut somebody else off, well, sorry, I, I didn't, didn't see you. Please give me some grace because that's the law of my kingdom, right? You have to give me grace. When I offend somebody, well, my kingdom rules just require that you grow up and get over it. But when I get offended, my kingdom rules allow me to keep my offended status for as long as I want and to continue to bring it up for as long as I want. And so this is, this is, this is the modern condition, right? This is, this is our modern world. Lots of people running around trying to build up their own little kingdoms at the expense of the people around them. I mean, sure, they may enter into allegiances and treaties with other kingdoms. They might get married. They might take a job. They might follow the law of the land. But they enter into those arrangements, those treaties, with the understanding that that they're going to help us build up our own kingdoms of self. We get married so that we won't feel alone, so that somebody can help support our kingdom. We take that job so that we can feed ourselves and and maybe, if we're lucky, uh, feel fulfilled. But ultimately, it's all about the kingdom of self. And our anger is rooted in the fact that somebody has the audacity to assault that kingdom. Somebody is choosing to oppose our vision and our understanding of how the world should work. Now, of course, ultimately, we understand, at least at an intellectual level, that we shouldn't be building up our own little kingdoms. We should be tearing down our kingdoms and using the pieces of that to build up God's kingdom instead. And I think that ultimately, that's what makes anger the issue here. Not that we're angry, but what it is that we're angry about. Because we're angry at having our own little kingdoms torn down by other people. But when we begin to follow Christ, that is a walk that requires that we lay down our whole lives, our whole kingdom, every part of it. And so there's no longer a place for us to become angry at the things that previously would have angered us. Because when we get cut off, instead of getting angry, we can trust that God, in his sovereignty, maybe needed us to be a little bit late. We can give thanks that he kept us safe. And if we're feeling particularly uh, okay that day, we might even be able to pray that the other driver gets to where they're going safely, pulling stunts like that. Because we are concerned, we should be concerned with building God's kingdom rather than building our own. When we hear something offensive to us or offensive about us, instead of getting angry, we can seek reconciliation and clarification because our relationship with that person, especially especially within the context of the church, helps build God's kingdom rather than our own. Excuse me. 
So this is what the Pharisees had been missing, right? They had been using the rules, God's law, as a way to build up their own kingdom, rather than as a way of building God's kingdom. And that had created in them this dangerous pride, this lack of compassion, this hardness of heart, which was exactly, uh, if you will remember, what Paul was cautioning Timothy about in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, it says in 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the law is good if it is used well, if it's used to build God's kingdom, to point people to him. But if it is used incorrectly, if we use it to build our kingdom of self, then it yields that hardness of heart that we see in the Pharisees. Now, God, uh, Christ goes on to give us some specific examples of how this plays out. Uh, verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So while you are worshiping, if you remember that something, somebody has something against you, stop and go and be reconciled with them. So this is a call, this would have been a call for them to interrupt the single most important aspect of worship for them for a week or, or even for the entire year. Stop, leave it, go and fix it. I mean, that's, that's tremendously disruptive, tremendously humbling, and, and very, very proactive. It requires that a person leave an animal, right? Leave an animal. Find somebody to watch it, tie it to a post, whatever you got to do. And there most likely would have been a line, right? I mean, you step out of line, you tie your goat or lamb to a tree, and you walk off. I mean, everybody's going to be looking at you saying, what in the world is going on? What are they doing? But it would have been humbling to do that, disruptive to do that. But that's the proactive approach that Christ calls us to, to be reconciled to one another. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So again, we see proactive reconciliation. It is always the responsibility of the believer, regardless of whether you have been wronged or you have wronged somebody else. It is always your responsibility to take the first step to reconcile to each other. It's proactive. It's disruptive. Right? As you are on your way to the court, you should still be seen trying to get this done. And humbling. Because if you're going to court, right, you think that you're in the right. But that doesn't matter in this case. You still are to pursue reconciliation. And so this, this requires that this person turn his back on his own kingdom, on his own desire for justice, and to seek first the kingdom of God. 
So in both of these examples, we are told to seek this sort of radical reconciliation, to give and to seek forgiveness proactively, regardless of the disruption that it causes in our own lives. Because doing that, pursuing reconciliation like that, forces us to tear down our kingdom of self and instead to be building up God's kingdom. So Jesus takes this Old Testament command, do not murder. And he says, no, you should not murder. But if you just don't murder, you've missed the point. In Christ's fulfillment of the law, he shows us that it's not enough to suppress or to control our anger, but that our anger, our devotion to our own kingdoms, is in and of itself sin. So when we get angry at somebody else for something that they did to us, that is sin. And sin is rebellion against God. And it's revealed as such, right? Because it betray, our anger betrays the existence of that kingdom of self that we have. It betrays a lack of trust in God's ability to understand what it is that's going on. And it betrays our lack of trust in God's sovereign control over all things. Now, we have a tendency, and the people from Sunday school this morning, this is going to sound really familiar. We have a tendency to respond to a command like this in one of two ways. We can respond with legalism, or we can respond with license. So the legalistic response, we read this text and we say, okay, I'm just going to try really hard to not get angry. So you go and you take anger management classes, which might be helpful anyway. Uh, we read books. We, we can redefine anger so that we don't get angry anymore. We get frustrated or we get upset, right? But the reality is that if we come at this issue from that direction, from just trying really hard to not get angry, we're going to fail. Eventually, we will fail. No matter how good your anger management skills are, no matter how much we try and restructure our lives to avoid these stressors, no matter how hard we try, we will fail. Now, if this is what you understand the Christian faith to be, simply trying really hard not to sin, then there's some very, very good news for you. Because what did it say back in verse 17? I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law on our behalf. On the behalf of those who couldn't ever fulfill it. Uh, the, the $15 theological phrase is the imputed righteousness of Christ. So Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. And when we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in him, when we give our lives in service to him, then we get that righteousness, that perfect life credited to us. 
It says in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the righteousness of God has come. And then in verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we have that righteousness credited to us through our faith in Christ. The very righteousness of God, the righteous life of Christ, completely in compliance with every part of God's law, that is given to us, that is credited to our account through our faith in him. So when we come to that final day, we're trusting our hope, our faith is not in our ability to have lived a good life, but our faith is in the perfect, good, just life that Christ has already lived. But there's a danger in taking that too far. You can fall off on the side of legalism, or you can fall off on the side of license, where you say, Christ already fulfilled the law. I don't have to worry about it. I can get angry all that I want, and Christ covers it. It's fine. God forgives people. That's his job, right? And so I can just do as I wish. The issue with that is that while the price of our sins has been paid, that does not give us permission to treat that grace and that mercy cheaply. Paul says in, in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I just do whatever I want because, hey, God's going to forgive me? By no means. And he goes on in that chapter to, to talk about how baptism is a representation of our death to sin. Because those who have died can't sin anymore, right? And so we have been united as believers to Christ in his death. That's what baptism is, is symbolic of. We have been united to Christ in his death. And so we have died to sin and been raised up out of the water into new life in him. A life of holiness and dedication to the Father. Um, the phrase that he uses there is slaves to righteousness, where we were previously slaves to sin. And then in, in conclusion of that thought, in Romans 6.12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So as believers, we have died to sin, and it no longer reigns in us. And we should live lives that reflect that. But it isn't just a matter of behavior modification. Instead, it begins with a changed heart, a heart that's been shaped and molded by God. And out of that changed heart flows changed behaviors. But if we don't, if we actively choose to pursue patterns of sin and disobedience, then I would say that we have good reason to question whether or not we have truly died to sin. And if we have not died to sin, then how can we live with Christ? 
Are we truly saved? If we choose to continue in patterns of unrepentant sin, have we truly trusted Christ for our salvation? Or are we still working on building that little kingdom where we are in charge, that kingdom of self? Now, the reason that those two errors, the error of legalism and the error of license, the reason that both of those are, are so pervasive, that they're so easy, is that they have at their, at their root just a small piece of truth, right? But the accuracy of that truth is, is distorted when it's taken out of the context of the gospel as a whole. You see, God, God's holiness, his perfection, demands that we be perfect, that we follow all of the rules perfectly, that we be holy as he is holy. His law requires that we never become angry with another person for their infringement on our little kingdom. But because of my sinfulness, because of my unholiness, I will never be able to meet that standard. I know that I will become angry again at some point in the future. And in doing so, I will fall short. And so because of that failure, I can never be right with him on my own behavior. I can never hope to truly be right with other people. And I can never hope to be right with myself. But when Jesus lived on the earth, he did meet that standard. And the Bible tells us that when we place our faith in him, that credit for living that perfect life, for meeting that standard, is given to us. And what's more, we have been given his Holy Spirit at work within us, sanctifying us, making us more like Christ so that we would be able to live lives that are more in line with who he is and, and who we want ourselves to be. Again, the, the phrases that, that Paul uses from Romans 6, uh, it makes us slaves to righteousness, slaves to goodness, rather than slaves to sin, as we had been before. And so each day, as God works in us through his word, through his spirit, and through his church, we find that with each passing day, our hearts are <coughs> excuse me, less inclined to be concerned with our own little kingdoms and are more concerned with the advancement of God's kingdom. We are less concerned with the offenses against us and more concerned with our gospel witness, with living out this good news to those around us. And as this sanctification occurs, we, as we become more and more like Christ with each passing day, we can pursue holiness. We can pursue not getting angry, knowing that even when we fail, we can be confident in the fact that when we fail, that's not the end. Because we were forgiven for that failure even before we had committed it. That price had been paid by Christ on the cross. And so our standing before our Heavenly Father, our standing before Almighty God, is judged not on what we have done, but on what He did. And I'll tell you, for somebody like me, that's wonderful news. Amen? Amen? Because regardless of how hard I work at simply willing myself to do better, 
to be better. I can't accomplish that. I never will be able to. And you never will be able to either. But God gives grace, and he gives it abundantly. He gives mercy, he gives forgiveness to all of us, to every one of us. If we ask for it, if we will turn our back on that own little kingdom, on our own little kingdoms that we're building, say, God, I don't want my kingdom. I want your kingdom. I make a terrible king. I want you to be king instead. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire. That is our goal. That is what we want from you. God, we do make terrible kings of these puny little kingdoms that we try and build. We mess it up. We can't ever hope to be able to get it right, even just over the little pieces that we think we have control over. And so every day, Father, help us to be constantly turning our backs on those little kingdoms that we try and build. Help us to leave them behind. Help us to repent of them and turn to you and say, not my kingdom, but yours. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my plan for my life, but your plan for my life. And Father, sometimes that looks like a sacrifice to us. But God, we know that according to your plan, you intend for us the very best. We intend what we think is best. But our view is too narrow. Our scope is too small. Father, we can't see it all. We don't understand it all. But you do. So this day, and every day, Father, please help us. Please empower us through your spirit to lay down those kingdoms at your feet and say, Lord Jesus, rule over my life as you rule over creation. Show me your glory so that I know others. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.